what's up, guys? It's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. On Sunday, the Big Picture Podcast is going live right after the Oscars with Sean Fennessy and Amanda Dobbins reacting to the top stories from Hollywood's biggest night. You can watch their reactions in real time or tune in later on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. For red carpet coverage and celebrity news from the night, listen to the newest episode of Ringer Dish with Juliet Littman, Kate Hallowell, Millie Wedemeyer, and me, Liz Kelly. Listen and subscribe to Ringer Dish and The Big Picture on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is Larry Wilmore. You're listening to Black on the Air. Coming to you live from Los Angeles. Well, not live. I don't know why I said that. Uh, but I am in Los Angeles. By the way, I was just in Atlanta over the weekend. Had a great talk with Stacey Abrams, who's going to be on the show today. I love Stacey Abrams. As she was uh, ran for governor of Georgia a couple years ago. And um, as she says, she did not lose. <laughs> you know, it was a very uh, interesting election. But I think it kind of spurred her in this fight that she has about voter suppression called Fair Fight. It's a group that she's the CEO of and Fair Count. Um, we talked about uh, voter suppression and the census. Really good conversation we had this weekend. It's great being in Atlanta. Had a really good time. Got to talk to some other uh, really interesting people, too. And we'll have somebody else on our pod a little later from there. Atlanta's really got a lot of energy in it now. But um, Stacy and her organization, Fair Fight, is something that— um, I really do believe in. I rarely get involved with stuff like that, but this is one of those things. I feel like there's so much information. There's so many things out there that people just don't have information on. I'll put it like that. And this is one of those, just if you're aware of it, <laughs> you, it will completely just blow your mind type of things, which I feel is important. And I feel it's the nonpartisan thing too, you know, just knowing what happens with uh, registering for vote, you know, and, and just how to protect your vote and that type of thing. And about the census, too. A lot of people don't know much about the census. So anyway, Stacey and I have a really good talk about it. And uh, she's great. She's somebody I really support a lot. And I think she's, you know, people have talked about her being a vice presidential candidate, you know, running for office. She insists she's going to be president by 2040 or something. By the way, I believe her. I believe anything that woman says. She's unbelievable. Such a leader. So anyhow, like I said, we're going to... We're in the thick of it politically, um, everything. Oh, last night was the Oscars. I don't know if you guys watched it. I was really happy for Parasite. Really loved that movie. Thought it was great. My favorite, I think I talked about, was 1917. That was my favorite out of all of them. But I was very happy for Parasite. Cool to see a movie like that, uh, get that kind of recognition. Um, why, am, why am I mentioning the Oscars? I don't know. I guess it's on my mind. Was there something else I wanted to say? I don't think so. Um my brain does this all the time, you guys. This is how I speak regularly, as anybody that knows me. I start to say something, then I go off on a tangent. I search my mind for the thing, and it's just gone. Nothing I can do about it. Just gone. And then at some point, it may reappear when you least expect it. Go, ah! Oh, by the way, I wanted to say this thing. But there's so many things going on. And yes, we are right in the thick of it in the political season it's times like this that I really miss doing the nightly show. And by the way, thank you to everybody who brings up the nightly show uh, on my Twitter feed and personally. I really did enjoy doing that show. And it's during election years that really makes me miss it. You know, believe me, it's tough doing a TV show every day. So part of the grind, you don't miss as much. But having the ability to speak about topics as they occur in real time, because stuff happens so fast. And there's so many issues, you know. 
Last week, of course, the president was acquitted in the impeachment, and I said I would talk about it a little more. I really didn't talk about impeachment too much when it was happening. I was not a big impeachment person. I think if you talk to me personally, I didn't call for it a lot on my podcast here, as you know. I, I talked to Nancy Pelosi when she was on my pod about it, and I got the sense at the time when she was on my pod that she wasn't— if she didn't seem enthusiastic about going down that road. And I think um, I think Nancy Pelosi is really smart, you know, and I feel that she may have thought it wasn't a good political thing to do. That's the sense that I got. I, I can't speak for her, but that's the sense that I got. I just personally felt like I just didn't see the point, really, uh, especially with the Republican majority in the Senate. There's no way Trump's going to be acquitted even if he was impeached. And by the way, there are a thousand reasons why Trump could be impeached, I think. But I didn't think he would be removed from office. If people's purpose of impeachment was to remove him from office, I did not think that was going to work with Mitch McConnell running the Senate, that we have a better shot at shaping minds and opinions about what he's actually doing and getting voting him out of office, which, of course, now we have to do. But I get it. I get people who really wanted him impeached. You know, I just, you know, politically, I just didn't think it would work. Some people just wanted to do it because they said, well, he's a corrupt person and he's doing corrupt things and that needs to be addressed. Well, like I said, you know, there's a thousand reasons why, you know, if you don't like him, you could certainly search for that. But you know, outside of a blatant breaking of the law, I think it's hard to get people on the other side, people who support him, to really get on that train because it is such a political act. I mean, when Clinton got impeached, he clearly perjured himself. Clear violation of the law. And, they were, you know, it was just something that was obvious, you know, as a reason to impeach him. What led to that is what people had a problem with. You know, the fact that they were going after him for what was, you know, something in his personal life had nothing to do with as I like to say, president, you know, was a clear violation, I think, of his responsibilities as a leader, you know, on a personal level. But in terms of impeachment, you know, he was kind of forced into, you know, having, I, that's a not a good use of words. I won't say he was forced into having to lie. He willfully lied. You know, he wanted to cover that up. But the nature of that investigation, I believe, was built to kind of trap the president, you know, in that position to get something on him. Because at the time, they were trying everything to get Clinton. In the same way that people right now are trying anything to get Trump, you know, this the Whitewater thing, all the accusations that were going against Clinton. There were a lot of accusations against him back in the day. And then when, you know, they found out about this dress with Monica Lewinsky, because at the time, Monica Lewinsky, she didn't want to testify against Bill Clinton. She didn't want to make that public. She wanted to keep it, you know, private. But she was kind of blackmailed by Linda Tripp, who pretended to be her friend, and found out that she had kept that dress. And then she gave it to other people, and it really turned into this whole blackmail type of thing. They had this information on Clinton, and he didn't know at the time when he lied about it. So anyhow, that's what that was about. Very political, very cynical. That's why people who were against that, as I was against that impeachment, because I thought it was a very cynical political thing, and... You know, Clinton, as we know, wasn't removed from office, ended up being more popular afterwards because it was seen as a cynical political act, even though people felt what he did was wrong. They felt he he never should have 
first of all, put Monica Lewinsky in that position, you know, as a leader. Secondly, he never should have lied about it. He almost destroyed his marriage at the time. You know, it was just really a bad time for him. But ironically, politically, he didn't suffer. His numbers went up from that. I believe Trump is in that position. Trump obviously did something wrong with Ukraine. He's obviously a corrupt man, you know. I'm not sure if it would raise to the level of removing someone from office because there was a lot of conjecture around it. You know, it didn't have—it wasn't as clean a thing as, like, lying under oath, if you know what I mean, you know. But people acknowledge that it was improper and that type of thing. Are the people who support him, do they like it? No. They see it as a cynical political ploy the way that the other thing. So it had that type of thing. And consequently, look at this, guys. Trump's numbers are the highest they have ever been. The highest they have ever motherfucking been. They're almost at 50%. This is crazy. This is what impeachment has given us, is what I'm saying. To me, this is the thing I was afraid of, that knowing what happened with Clinton and everything, knowing that he can't be removed from office, you know, the act of doing this is emboldening people who, you know, who like him and who want to like him and who feel good about, you know, the economy or whatever. People aren't even paying attention that much. So anyhow, I feel the Democrats are in a lot of trouble right now. I felt, man, to me, it feels like Trump's going to get reelected. I hope I'm wrong about that. But there's a big fight. And right now, the Democrats have a lot. They have a lot to overcome. And the biggest hurdle they have to overcome is them, is themselves, are themselves, is themselves, is themselves, right? Um, the grammar nerds out there can correct me if you want. Um, and right now, they're having almost an existential problem on their hands they're having a problem defining themselves of who the who they are right now republicans went through this too i mean trump really blew up the republican party in so many ways and then they realized he was going to win they just jumped on the trump train they, they don't give a shit about being actual republicans they're just really trumpists at this point right so the democrats are kind of going through the same thing in a slightly different way they're having a fight right now between two questions number one is who is the candidate and what is the party that can beat Trump? And number two, who's the candidate and who is the person that can lead the party? Who's the leader of the party? Who represents the vision of this party, the party itself? What does the party stand for? I believe that people who have a vision for something and want to lead and that type of thing tend to have an advantage over what I call a cynical reason to run when you just want to beat somebody. I think that kind of puts you in a weaker position which is why I don't think Biden is really inspiring people. Look, this is ironic, guys. Think about this. As much as Trump, as much as the people who cannot stand Trump, myself included, that energy is not a winning energy. It's fascinating how human nature works. And the reason why is because people in their hearts, they really want to vote for something, not against something. They really do. They honestly really do. Obama didn't run against Bush and the Bush thing. You know, he didn't really run against McCain. He ran for something. He ran for a vision, this thing of hope and change. He, people felt positive about the reasons Obama was running. They were looking forward. They weren't looking back that it was against something. It wasn't very cynical. Say what you will about Trump, but Trump's simple message. And remember, I talked about this back in the day. This is before I had my podcast. But when I said make America great again is a positive message, it is a positive message, meaning he wants to do something that people can get behind. 
running against Trump is a cynical message, not saying that it's wrong. You know, it's a good reason to run, but it's cynical. It's the same thing John Kerry, when he ran against Bush, he was running against Bush because he hated it. People hated Bush, wanted to stop him. It's hard to run against something. It's easier to run for something. That's why it's hard to beat incumbents, by the way, because by its nature, you're running, you're running to stop something, you're running against something. You have to have a really good message. And the incumbent has to be weakened in some way, which exposes, it gives wind to your message in some way. You know, Trump has his personality and his his personal peccadillos, as you will, you know, and those things don't seem to be enough to run against. Because ironically, the things that that everybody hates about Trump on my side, the people on the other side love that shit about him. So you can't use that as a reason to get people on your side, ironically, because it's not about policy. You know, you can't point out how it's hurting somebody. You know, when he says these nasty things about people, I mean, think about it, guys. The president of the United States at the National Prayer Breakfast is saying nasty things about his opponents at the National Prayer Breakfast. And his his biggest supporters are evangelists. What the fuck? Seriously. This doesn't make sense. But if I point that out, it doesn't matter. They keep liking him because, you know, he's this id for them. You know, he's able to... Uh, just be this thing inside of them that they wish they could say, you know, at all times and expresses these feelings. They don't care that it's at the National Prayer Breakfast. It's really crazy. It's really fucked up. It's the hardest, uh, you know, if this were a monster movie, this this thing would have four acts. It wouldn't be a three-act movie. You know, the fourth act would have to be the act where we destroy this fucking monster because three acts just aren't enough. It's too difficult. It's too fucking mind-blowing and mind-expanding to try to do it. So the Democrats have a big problem in their hands because the problem is with themselves right now. So, But who's going to be the person who's going to articulate something that people can energize around? And I'm not sure if beating Trump is the thing. That's what I'm saying, okay? So that's what we're going to watch over the next few months. That's what I'm going to talk about. Who's doing that? Who's inspiring people? And who's inspiring people real? I don't mean in some of this bullshit stuff <laughs> that Buttigieg is spouting out right now. I don't know. I, I can't take Buttigieg seriously at this point. I just can't. There's a lot of people that like him, whatever. He seems to be uh, doing too much flowery bullshit for me right now. You know, we got to get serious about this shit is what I'm saying. You know, look, and if Buttigieg is going to be that person, fine. I'll get behind him, whatever. But that motherfucker's got to get a little more serious. And Biden's got to wake the fuck up, too, and get more serious, too. People have to really wake up at this point and take this shit seriously, you know. And Sanders may be the one that that has both of these qualities, by the way. It may be Sanders. So we'll see. All right. So the last thing, a little longer uh, than I usually do. I want to talk about, so, you know, remember last uh, week, I was very, um, very emotional about the passing of Kobe Bryant. You know, I'm a big Laker fan. I express my feelings and everything. I appreciate everybody that had something nice to say about it. It was so tragic. You know, and as we know, it wasn't just Kobe. It was all those other people, too. And, you know, and his daughter. All that's just nasty. Tragic, tragic stuff. So Gail King, uh, CBS This Morning, interviewed Lisa Leslie, who used to play with the Los Angeles Sparks. Great basketball player. Really one of the people to put the WNBA on the map. Uh, Big star here in L.A. and all over Lisa Leslie. I think she was one of the first uh, women NBA players I've seen dunk, I think. She was one of the first people to do it. It was great. She's awesome. And she and Kobe were good friends. They came up at about the same time. And Gail had her on her show, and she's asking about Kobe. And in the interview, she brought up uh, the sexual assault allegations 
And I would say she probably asked maybe too many questions to Lisa. Um, You know, it's really not, you know, Lisa was Kobe's friend. You know, I don't know if asking him about the sexual assault was necessarily, you know, the best thing to do at this point. You know, you could tell Lisa Leslie got very uncomfortable. And and Gail, her follow-up questions made it even more uncomfortable. But it was a part of the interview, and, you know, Gail's doing her job, whatever. But people went crazy, as you know, if you guys have been following it. Internet went crazy, blasting Gail King, saying how could she and all this stuff. You know, people very emotional about the passing of Kobe and all that stuff. And people had a lot of varied opinions about why they were upset, you know, but really blasting Gail King in the process. But the biggest one of these people was, was Snoop Dogg, who got— on social media, made this video, and really did a nasty takedown of Gail in this. He, It wasn't that he was just emotional about Kobe. I mean, he got nasty, you know, with some real personal attacks and almost a, a threatening attack at the end. Now, he has since come on. Uh, and by the way, there weren't a lot of people in social media who were even attacking Snoop for that. And it was pretty harsh, except for, with the possible exception, of Susie Rice, uh, our ex-UN ambassador and head of the National Security Agency, who kind of slapped, clapped back at Snoop with this thing, you know, don't fuck with Gail. You know, she's this and that. I'll come after you. Snoop has, I don't know if he apologized for that reason. He has since kind of apologized, you know, kind of said what he wanted to say. And Oprah went on TV on Friday and said Gail was really in bad shape. And let me just say this. Here's my take on this, guys. Let's just stop this. You know, let's all admit this was a tragic thing. Gail's just doing her job as a journalist, but she doesn't, there's no like, oh, here, here's one of the, the central the central accusations here, because this is important too, because it became a racial thing. And here's what, here's what it is. There's the thought out there that Oprah and Gail, and maybe, I don't know, there's a general thought about black women, but it was expressed through Oprah and Gail, that they're in this... I don't know, they have this desire to pull down black men or whatever. Because Oprah had this special Finding Neverland about Michael Jackson, and she had this discussion, and that Oprah was, you know, had the whole interview with R. Kelly or whatever, and uh, and then brought up this thing with Kobe, and people saying, how come you're not talking about Harvey Weinstein and all this stuff? Okay, people, this is a ridiculous conversation. There's so many non-sequiturs in that type of argument. Of course, Gail talked about Harvey Weinstein. She covered that stuff every fucking day when it was going on. Of course, the even the Charlie Rose thing, you know, that was her colleague, and that was very difficult for her to talk about. But Gail is a professional. She's a journalist. She's just doing her job. But she doesn't have an agenda to attack black men. R. Kelly did some fucked up stuff, and he did some fucked up stuff to black women. All right, let's get this straight. You know, and if anything, how about applauding Gail that she's helping to protect these black women? And a lot of these black women were actually black girls that we're talking about. Not even not even women, girls. And, you know, anybody that knows any of this stuff about R. Kelly knows exactly what I'm talking about. Gail was doing her due diligence with that interview that was long overdue, by the way, and did the right thing. But there was no racial um, motivation behind what Gail was doing. Like, I got to bring down this black man. You guys... That is such an unfair accusation about somebody, and you're painting your own opinions on that, and it's not the truth. You're painting your own opinions on that. So getting back to this one, it is possible to not like the Gale interview and to be uncomfortable about it, 
But it's also possible that Gail has no agenda behind it, okay? Those two things don't have to exist. We live in this fucking conspiracy world. People don't even think we went to the fucking moon, for Christ's sake. And there always has to be some grand conspiracy behind something that people want to bring people down and all this stuff. Just stop it. Really, really stop it. Oprah Winfrey doing that whole thing on Michael Jackson. People forget Oprah Winfrey was molested as a child, you know, and as a teenager. That is a very important issue to her. It's not her fault that Michael Jackson was famous, you know, doing all that. You know, if she's covering that, she's covering from a real place, not to bring down a black man. And the whole Bill Cosby thing really stopped people. And you know that's one of my issues. The whole issue between the Bill Cosby thing has nothing to do with race. That has everything to do with power. Everything to do with women who weren't being heard, never being believed, never having the ability to speak up because men institutionally had the power to shut them the fuck up immediately. And Bill Cosby was the uber allis example of that, the uber allis example of that. And it was heartbreaking to hear these stories from these women and anybody, including myself, going after Bill Cosby. Nobody is prouder, you know, well. I can't. No, I sound like Trump. I'm as proud as anyone about being black, being in the business and all that stuff. It does not make me feel good as a black man to go after Bill Cosby. But you better believe this. It makes me feel good as a human being on this earth to call some motherfucker out for doing some bad, evil shit. And we should always think about life like that. You know, that's when everything else goes to the wayside. So keep things in perspective on this. I will uh, parrot the thing that Susan Rice said, Gail is a respected journalist who deserves our, our respect. You can disagree with, with, her, with her interview. wasn't perfect. Nobody said she's a perfect person. Nobody gets it right all the time. doesn't matter. You can't put that other stuff on there, and you cannot accuse her of the things that she's been accused of. All right? There you go. That's all I got. Okay. Um... Ooh, we got Stacey Abrams coming up. God, I can't wait for you guys to get into this conversation. A lot of good stuff coming up this month, though, so I'm very excited about it. We'll be right back. All right, welcome back, guys. Very excited here in Atlanta. And I was able to corner (laughs) one of my favorite people right now, especially... In these days, we need people like uh, who's sitting down with me, founder of Fair Fight, should have been your guys' governor of Georgia here in Atlanta. You guys know that. Stacey Abrams. Stacey, welcome to Black on the Air. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks so much for being here. Um, so much to talk about. So much going on right now. I do want to get your thoughts on this whole thing in Iowa. Happy to do it. <laughs> now, I should say, for whenever you're listening to this, we haven't had the New Hampshire vote yet. I think that's next week sometime. Yes. So we're kind of right in the middle. But this debacle, I don't even think it's over yet there, right? Well, they, there is uh, a decision, and uh-huh. it's basically a, a tie between Buttigieg and Sanders. So there is a decision. Yes. Uh-huh. But here's what I need people to remember. Three things. Right. Number one, this happened in 2012 yes. with Mitt Romney and Rick Santorum. Oh, it was terrible it is, for Santorum, yes. I remember, yeah. It is a flaw in the system. It's uh-huh. not a conspiracy or a collapse of democracy. It okay. is a flawed system. You think it's the Iowa people. That's what you're saying. No, I think. That's what you're telling me. <laughs> I think it's Something a ca- in the corn. I think it's a caucus <laughs> problem. Okay. Uh, which is why, number two, we need to remember we're allocating 41 delegates out of 5,000. Right. 
this is not going to transform the electorate <laughs> yes. or the election in any way that is meaningful. And they're getting they're, – no one's getting the 41 delegates. They're, it's being – Exactly. Uh, it's being apportioned to, exactly. it's, to it's, like four different candidates. Right? Exactly. And right. that's why I want us to bring down the paranoia okay. and increase the rational. Okay. Which is that Iowa has been a good feeling thing, but it was made popular actually by Jimmy Carter. Yes. And it is not predictive of the president of the United States in any meaningful way. Yeah. I applaud Iowa. I appreciate their first in the nation status. I think it's time to share. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the third thing that right. what this put into sharp relief is that it's time for something new. Well, it's funny because primaries were never really a thing. You know, we had the the cigar smoking men in, in the smoke filled rooms picking the yeah. candidates and that type of thing. I think it was McGovern who uh, first kind of made it a thing again in 72, you know, and then Carter, of course, right. and that type of thing where we put so much importance. Do you think it's a media thing that we put? importance on who's getting attention first? Because as you say, the votes really aren't that important. Well, I think it's two things. One is that because a primary is literally a party picking its person. Exactly. We have conflated exactly. it with democracy. Correct. <laughs> Thank you so This is why I have Stacey Abrams on my show. Yes. And while we have become more democratic in the way the party picks its person, yes. we still have multiple states deciding how their people will participate in the process. That's exactly right. And so what Iowa signifies is historical norms, or sorry, historical abnormalities. Mm-hmm. We had Jimmy Carter, who used it to boost himself to president. Yeah, because no one knew who he was. No one knew who he was. Right. Then you had Barack Obama, who used it to prove to— A black man can win. A black man can win. And we've used those two proof points to extrapolate from that all of these other things about the narrative of who wins that are completely false. Yeah. And so we need to let that go and actually resettle on a new way. If we're going to use this as a predictor, we're going to use primaries as a predictor, Mm -hmm. then we need to have— a primary electorate that looks like the electorate all the way through. If we're going to have a primary predictor. But as you're saying, this is, people have to, this is such a good point. Primaries are a political process. It's the political machine. And that's why if it looks a little oily or greasy, it's because it's a political machine happening right now. It's not meant to be a true democratic process. It is not. We we don't have a parliamentary system in America. We have a party system. Correct. And we have architected our party system to essentially only have two parties. Mm -hmm. And then we let the parties pick who their standard bearers are. Yeah, The way it happens in other nations is that the people in the back room still sit in the back rooms and they pick who gets to run on their ticket. That's right. We have created this transparency light (laughs) version of it where we say, we'll tell you who can do it, but here are the ways we're going to figure it out. But ultimately- no one who's voting is actually picking the person. The delegates pick the person. I wonder if we've done the right thing by making it more, it's really more of a popularity contest in some ways because people are so much more directly involved in the picking of it, right? Well, I, I think it's a necessary evolution of the process because as we mm-hmm. co- become a larger and larger nation, being a member of one of these two parties has a different meaning depending on which state you live in, where you, who you are, where you stand. Right. In parliamentary systems, you have multiple factions that can each organize. We don't have that because we are a democratic republic. And so I think this is the best of what we know how to do so far. Mm -hmm. But the benefit is that we get better each time Mm -hmm. if we think about what we did wrong the last time and try to improve. And what seems to happen, I've noticed in the primary system, I think it happens in both parties, where there's, the party can't address all the issues in one person. 
Of course not. You know, and people try to do that. I mean, I love that you bring up the parliamentary system because you're right. There's a system for addressing all these different things, yeah. you know. And it's so transparent when they go to different states, too. Oh, yeah. Like, as you talk <laughs> about, if South Carolina, people say South Carolina went first, they would not be talking about ethanol and, you know, exactly. and, and having fried butter at fairs. You now, know. the fried butter may still be there in South Carolina. That's true. We are in South Carolina. Yeah. That is true, you know. Um, in the South writ large, we like to fry things. So. You guys fry everything. We do. You will have a fried salad here. If it tastes good. <laughs> Frying is the way to go. Yeah. Well, let's talk about you more uh, directly, uh, Stacey, uh, for people that don't know your story, the running for governor and all that. So how did you get into politics I mean, uh, originally? So I grew up in Southern Mississippi. Right. My mom and dad were working class. Uh, actually, my mom was a college librarian. My dad mm-hmm. was a shipyard worker. But because of the systems, my parents never made it above you know, working poor. Right. And there was a hard ceiling on that type of lifestyle. M- my mom right. sometimes made less money than the janitor who cleaned the college, hmm. even though she had a master's degree. Right. And so my parents could have become very bitter. I'm sure they were angry a lot. But what they did was they taught us, you know, your job is to do service. You mm-hmm. can't just bemoan your situation. You have to work to make it better. Part of that was service going out doing for others. But the other part was voting. Mm-hmm. And I would question, like, how are my parents and their six children going to fix Mississippi? Because it seemed like a lot to do. Yeah. And mom and dad said, you know, the other part should be government should be more effective in leveling the playing field, providing access, removing barriers. And they didn't say it quite that way, but mm-hmm. I became fascinated with the notion of government. The more I became involved with government, I worked for the city of Atlanta when I was in college. I mm-hmm. interned for the federal government And the more I did that work, the more I realized that politics is the engine that makes government run, and Mm -hmm. I needed to understand politics. I originally thought I'd be a bureaucrat, but having worked for the city of Atlanta, I decided I wanted to be mayor. I then worked for another mayor who was extraordinary and realized, I don't want that job. (laughs) And so I decided I would run for governor. Although it is is interesting that Many times, most of the effective things that happen for people are at the local level. Oh, absolutely. Yes. And that was one of the reasons. I worked for Maynard Jackson when I was in college. Mm -hmm. I worked for the Office of Youth Services. I later became deputy city attorney for the city of Atlanta under Mayor Shirley Franklin. Mm -hmm. Mayor Franklin was an extraordinary mayor. But what came into sharp relief for me was that so many of the things that she wanted to do to serve her community and her constituents the intercessor and the block came from the governor, came from the state mm. legislature. She was a Democratic mayor at a time when Republicans had taken over state government. Right. I was the legal author of the first uh, living wage ordinance for the state of Georgia. Mm-hmm. We got it through the, st- the city council. It was immediately preempted by the state legislature. We would try to take action on homelessness, but the state constitution and the allocation of funds from the state level preempted what we wanted to do or interceded. And what I became fascinated with is that, yes, the closest government to the people is the local government, but the state level often sets the tone and can disturb both the laws you create and the allocation of funds that you receive, and that can render even the most effective mayor ineffective on issues that matter. Yeah. It's the that fight between governing and then politics. Yes. And how politics can so much get in the way of governing. I mean, with Obama, Mitch McConnell made it clear that politics was the number one issue and governing was not. Absolutely. And Mm -hmm. part of what we forget is that if you think about the most egregious examples in sort of progressive politics, if you think about 
the evisceration of the social safety net. Mm -hmm. That didn't happen because of President Clinton in 1996. That started with Tommy Thompson as the governor of Wisconsin. Talking about welfare reform that happened in the 90s, right? Mm -hmm. When you think about mass incarceration, that was not the, it didn't, its genesis wasn't the 94 crime bill. Mm -hmm. It was Governor Ronald Reagan in California when he began the wave that became being tough on crime. Yeah. Stand your ground. And that's, not- that started because he was mad at the students at Berkeley exactly. who were protesting. Exactly. Which, by the way, also led to fees at colleges turning into tuition because college was free back then. Exactly. Because of Reagan getting snippy at college students. And I got a lot of California history. You should. You and you should provide. And, yeah. and that's the thing. People, we often Because college remember- used to be free in California. Yeah. People don't realize that. And people right. only remember the outcome. They don't remember yes. how it started. Correct. Stand your ground. It was not a federal law. It started mm-hmm. under Jeb Bush in Florida. Mm-hmm. That's how people are being shot and mm. killed and being allowed to claim, well, I was afraid. Yeah. And then, you know, for me, I'm from Mississippi. I live in Georgia. Jim Crow never had a single federal law. It was all state law. Yeah. And so we have to remember that we can't simply focus on the presidency and the absolutely right. the Congress. We have to focus on state legislatures, on mm-hmm. governors, on mayors, but also on DAs. If you want to know why you go to jail, look at who your district attorney is mm. and how they charge. If you want shorter sentences because you think you shouldn't go to you know, prison for 10 years for stealing $109 worth of bread, then look at who you elect as judges. We have to stop thinking about this as a top-down system and realize that we possess the capacity to change the system simply by showing up. Yeah, why do you think people feel so... I feel like people feel like they're powerless, and they they do feel like the president holds all the levers. The president holds very few levers for people's ordinary lives. Absolutely. Because we spend billions of dollars every four years, and it now feels like we spend billions of dollars every year (laughs) telling people about the presidency. We spend very little time and money speaking about how civics actually works. Mm -hmm. And in most of our school systems, high-stakes testing has often eviscerated any attempt to teach civics 101 at all, Mm -hmm. and that ignores the entire – layer of current adults who never learned it and don't understand it. And because of that, they believe what they've been told, which is the power sits in the presidency, not in my ability to pick a new city council member who can make sure my trash gets picked up on Thursdays. Right. And because people, it's all tribalism now. So people have turned off the need to do their own investigation into people. Because many times on the local level, you don't even know what party somebody is. But you better know what somebody is about and what they intend to do, which can be very important, right? Absolutely. And and I will say this. We've always been tribal, but it used to be that our communications Mm -hmm. was universal. Mm -hmm. You may hate the person talking. You may not like Edward R. Murrow or whomever, but you didn't have a choice. And it was the the recent invention – of our fractured media communications that's allowed the tribalism of our behavior Mm -hmm. to be amplified and actually to be cemented. We no longer have those forced communications that we used to where we may hate each other, but we had to listen to the same thing. Right. Let's talk about what happened to you when you ran for governor, because to me, it's kind of like at the genesis of the work that you're doing right now. I don't know if that's the reason for the work you're doing right now, but it certainly seems to be, as we in the screenwriting business call, the inciting incident. (laughs) (laughs) You know, as a fellow writer, by the way, we can talk about that a little bit, too, if you want. I love that about you, by the way. So what happened? So, I guess it's a fair way to yes. ask. Yes. <laughs> so you know, when we launched- She's not governor, y'all. I want to know what happened. Yes. <laughs> I, I often start my talks when I go around the country talking about these issues. I say, mm-hmm. look, I'm not the governor of Georgia. Yes. But let me tell you what we did. Good. We launched our campaign in May of 2017 with the very strong intention of doing something that had not been done in Georgia. And I would say around the country on a local scale 
to the extent we did it, which was that we were going to center communities of color mm-hmm. uh, because they comprise roughly 46% of the population in Georgia. Right. We were going to talk about the marginalized and the disadvantaged, have conversations about abortion and gun safety, mm-hmm. talk about the LGBTQIA community, talk about the Muslim community, talk about immigration, have real conversations with voters. Have a grown-up conversation. Have a grown-up conversation right. treating people like they have sense. Yes, thank you. And we were going to do something crazy, which is that we were going to talk to these communities and about these communities and at the same time reach out to the majority white population that is Georgia. Because if every person of color in Georgia voted, I would not have gotten enough votes to win because we have to build coalitions. That's Absolutely. just the nature of politics. And by the way, should that's what politics is about. You should build, exactly. build coalitions, right? And I believe in it. I've mm-hmm. done it most of my life. And so what we did worked. We tripled Latino turnout. We tripled Asian Pacific Islander turnout. Mm -hmm. We increased youth participation rates by 139%. We increased black participation by 40%, which doesn't sound as exciting, until you realize in 2014, 1.1 million Democrats voted for governor. In 2018, 1.2 million black people voted for me. Woo! We had the single largest increase in midterm turnout in Georgia history, and I received more votes than any Democrat in the history of Georgia, including votes for presidential candidates. Plus, we increased the white participation rate for Democrats for the first time in 30 years. That's crazy. Yeah. And I should be governor. So based on those <laughs> yes. numbers. Absolutely. <laughs> you, you would think that that's what would happen. But right. as I was doing that work, as mm-hmm. we were changing the electorate, and we did, we increased participation by more than 750,000 people mm-hmm. over the prior midterm election. At the same time we were doing that work, my opponent is this cartoon villain named Brian Kemp. Yes. Who was serving as Secretary of State. He, during his tenure, purged 1.4 million people from the rolls. Some of them were dead. A lot of them weren't. How long had he been Secretary of he State? He served from 2010 until he cast his uh, hat into the— Well, actually, he served as Secretary of State until he became governor because mm-hmm. he refused to yep. resign. And that was 2000. So 2010, he, be, he was uh-huh. appointed as uh, Secretary of State. And right. part of the problem was he served during the election. Mm-hmm. So during our campaign, during our election, right. he was in charge of the vote. Mm-hmm. He was in charge of overseeing the closure of 214 precincts during his tenure, which according to an AJC analysis, Atlanta Journal-Constitution, led to between fifty and 60,000 people not being able okay. to cast ballots. Let's just repeat that number again because I just want the – I mean – this the feelings that are going through yeah. me right now. It's just uh, please repeat those numbers again. Sure. He purged 1.4 million people from the rolls. 1.4 million people from the rolls. Including purging 8% of Georgia's voting population in a single day. In a single day. Right before he decided to run or cast his hat into the ring to run for Secretary of State. And how many precincts? He clo- He oversaw the closure of 214 precincts. This is a devastating number yeah. because the closure of precincts, it's hard for people to get out to vote many times, you know. Absolutely. You're closing precincts, you know, making it harder for people to even find places and that type exactly. of thing. That's on purpose. It, it was absolutely yeah. intentional. Georgia is the single physically largest state east of the Mississippi. Mm-hmm. We are massive. We have 159 counties, but more than 100 of those counties are considered rural, which means if you close a polling place and you only have three to begin with and now you've got two, but it takes an hour to get there if you've got a car, 
Right. And if you don't have a car and there is no public transit, which there is not in most of our rural counties, Mm -hmm. then you don't have the right to vote. Right. And we know that that affected between 50 and 60,000 voters. We know that Georgia had the longest lines for black voters in the country, sometimes up to four to five hours. Yeah, I remember that. We had under-resourced communities where some communities that had thousands of voters had two machines. And other precincts that only had hundreds of voters had 10 machines. Most of the difference was whether you were black or white. We had one precinct that didn't have power cords for their machines because uh. maybe electricity is, is magic. Right. Um, <laughs> and so these were the things that happened. We had one of the highest rejection rates of absentee ballots because Georgia has this thing called exact, I mean, uh, signature mismatch. Yes. That is that when you sign the back of your absentee ballot, assuming it showed up because thousands of people never got their absentee ballots, Uh but assuming your ballot showed up, if you sign the back of it and send it back, if you were in a rural white county, they would call and say, we think there's a problem. This doesn't look right. Can you come and fix it? Uh If you were in one of our other counties, they may or may not tell you. They (laughs) threw it away. Do a little Nancy Pelosi and just tear it up. (laughs) And in the most diverse county in Georgia, they had the highest rejection rate. Mm -hmm. We had provisional ballots being given out to people who should have gotten real ballots. And here's the the challenge. A provisional ballot is intended to be a good thing. It's a a remedy. I had to do on the last election. Mm -hmm. And the idea is it it came from the 2006 Help America Vote Act. And the Mm -hmm. idea was if there's any mistake that's made, if you're otherwise eligible, let you vote anyway. Right. The problem is it says that you have three days to cure whatever the problem is. Mm. But if you're a shift worker who technically only by law gets some time off to vote on election day, there's no allowance for you to get time off to come back and cure between nine and five, which means most people who had to vote provisional could never go back and fix whatever problem existed, presuming the problem was their fault in the first place. Exactly. Because Georgia also had a terrible database problem where Christine Jordan – the cousin of Martin Luther King Jr., who has voted from the same place since 1968, at the age of 92, when she went to vote for me, was told she did not exist. And it took her granddaughter hours to get her a provisional ballot. Mm. These are not things that should happen in a democracy. And in Georgia, where you might have one or two system breakdowns, the entire system collapsed, or I would say was was collapsed by a combination of Brian Kemp's malfeasance mm-hmm. and his incompetence, and, and it worked. And what was the margin of so-called victory? Fifty-four thousand seven hundred and twenty-three votes. Fifty-four thousand. Okay. And when did your nose first get a whiff? Because Georgia, you don't just vote on election day. Well, how early so can you Georgia, vote? Georgia, by law, actually has some of the best opportunities to vote. The issue isn't what's available. Mm -hmm. It's what actually works. Okay. So Georgia allows you to vote absentee. You can request your absentee ballot months in advance and Mm -hmm. you have 40 days to to do absentee balloting. Okay. We have three weeks of early voting. Okay. So three weeks of early voting and you can go to a place and vote? You can go to a place and vote. Okay. Got it. And so, and then you have election day. And is that open on the weekends? So in, in, Throughout the state, there's one Saturday, okay. and in a handful of counties, or actually I think we got it up to about 10, you can vote on a Sunday. Okay. So on paper, we have a great system. The mm-hmm. problem was we had an administrator of that system who did not believe in all the voters okay. and who leveraged his authority over the course of a, almost a decade to diminish the effectiveness. So let me give you an example about absentee ballots. Mm-hmm. Georgia has had good absentee ballot laws since around 2005. When Republicans took over, they liberalized how you can use absentee ballots. 
because during that time, usually Republicans used absentee ballots, not Democrats. Right. Down in a place called Quitman, Georgia, in Brooks County, a woman named Nancy Denard was she made her she'd gotten onto the school board because the school system was majority black, but the board was majority white. And there was a deep concern that they were intentionally underfunding the school system. So she wanted more people who represented the kids. So she read the law and she realized that she could use absentee ballots to make sure more voters of color, mainly more black voters, voted. She called the secretary. Stand up that pot. There you go. So she (laughs) called the secretary of state. She got. She made sure she understood the rules. Mm -hmm. She got a group of women together. Had three candidates. I think two or three candidates run, and they won. They won and got those seats. When they were elected, the white members who lost their seats were so irate that they went to a judge and said, "Let us run as independents." Now, in Georgia, we have what's called a sore loser law. If you lose in a primary, if you run as a Democrat, you don't get to come back and say, let me try again. If you lose, you lose. Mm -hmm. They got a judge to say, it's okay, you can go ahead and try again. They lost a second time. And because of that- They got to redo an election? They got to redo an election. And then when that didn't work, the Secretary of State, Brian Kemp, in 2010, authorized the Georgia Bureau of Investigation to go and raid these women's homes days before Christmas, arrested Nancy Denard, arrested the other women, put them in jail, Mm -hmm. and had them under investigation facing 120 felonies for three years simply because they used absentee ballots. Eventually, they were all exonerated. Not a single person was convicted. Mm -hmm. But the problem is, down in Quitman, Georgia, people don't use absentee ballots as much Mm -hmm. because it's not just the act. It's the miasma of fear that gets created. People are afraid because they don't want to lose their jobs because those women lost their jobs. Mm -hmm. They lost their standing in the community. In Hancock County in 2014, a lot of black men voted in a a local election more than they were used to. Mm -hmm. And so in 2015, the Secretary of State, Brian Kemp, and the state legislator, Barry Fleming, who happened to be the county attorney for that county, got the Board of Elections to start following black men home inquiring about whether they were legally allowed to vote. Mm. It was so egregious that black men started calling the county asking to be taken off of the rolls because they didn't want the sheriffs knocking on their doors. Because in Hancock County, you are three times more likely to be arrested if you're black than if you're white. So because they participated in a nonpartisan election, because they showed up, Mm -hmm. they were afraid to even vote. They didn't want to be even listed on the voting rolls. And so we have to think about voter suppression in this way. What Brian Kemp did in 2018 was not only what he did. Mm-hmm. It's what he did for almost a decade, creating this penumbra of fear that mm-hmm. said that even though we have good laws, right. he was going to manipulate those laws to ensure his own success. And it worked. If you're a black person trying to vote, it's like landing on Omaha Beach or something, you know, just trying to get to the cliffs. Let's talk about fair fight. So. Having gone through this, is that what kind of made you decide that you needed you need to do something directly about sure. this? Mm-hmm. So in 2014, I'd launched new, the New Georgia Project, which was mm-hmm. a voter registration effort. We registered hundreds of thousands of Georgians. And in 2014, I also launched a group called the Voter Access Institute because once you get registered, it's not enough. It's like giving someone a driver's license but never teaching them how to drive. Got so it. we started the Voter Access Institute to increase voter engagement. Mm-hmm. After the 2018 election, I had, t- I had a few time, you know, I had <laughs> yeah, time a little off. Time. A little time in your hands. And so, and Finish be- that novel. Exactly. Right. 
learn crochet. Mm -hmm. So between election day and my non-concession day, the day I I gave my final speech, Mm -hmm. we transformed the Voter Access Institute into Fair Fight. Mm -hmm. So it's a continuation of work I'd done. But what I realized because of that election was that it wasn't enough to try to engage voters. We had to protect them. Right. And so Fair Fight is our fight against voter suppression and our fight to increase in access, uh, increase access to the right to vote in Georgia and around the country. Okay. One of the things, because um, you say voter suppression, I think a lot of people in their heads have an arcane view of voter suppression. You know, the poll tax, you know, ah, right, boy, recite the Constitution, you know, and that sort of thing that we've seen in movies. I just made that up, of course. But, uh, <laughs> you know, but that's kind of the idea. But voter suppression is a multi-layered type Absolutely. of thing. It comes in different forms, different ways. Uh, Michael, we were just talking about our engineer here about being just mysteriously dropped off a roll yes. and that type of thing. It happened to me in California, you know, and I had to do a provisional ballot. Let's go through the different sure. ways voter suppression can happen so people know it's it's not a it's not necessarily someone physically preventing you, like standing at the door type of thing. Right. Okay? So we remember, as you said, we remember the pre-1965 version of voter yes. suppression. Which, which, by the way, led to the Voting Rights Act. Exactly. Right. Now, what modern voter suppression looks like is bureaucratic nightmare. Okay. And that's why it's so effective. Mm-hmm. We don't have a single democracy in America. We have 51 democracies, one mm-hmm. per state that get to follow different rules, and then a federal overlay that says you can do some really bad things, but here, here's where we draw the line. <laughs> right, yeah. right. Basically. And we have mm-hmm. to remember that with every constitutional amendment, the 15th, and six, the 19th, and the 26th amendment that increased access to the right to vote, mm-hmm. it's always delegated to the states the authority to implement it, mm. which means the very people who were blocking the right to vote get to be in charge of how they fix themselves. Right. Fixing yourself is rarely a solution. You usually need someone else to make you better. We don't mm-hmm. usually do other than, you know, the first two weeks after New Year's, we don't, we're not really good at fixing ourselves. Right. And the same thing is true for states. And so there are three ways to think about voter suppression. The first one is, can you register and stay on the rolls? Okay. So you've got states like Tennessee, Florida, Texas, Wisconsin, that have made it harder to get on the rolls. Mm-hmm. And then you have things like voter purges, Georgia, Kentucky, now, when Florida. When you say harder to get on the rolls. Okay. okay. So- Meaning you haven't been on the rolls and you're trying to get on or? So it's, can you register and stay? So registration is hard for some states. What makes it hard? It depends on how you try to register. Mm -hmm. So for, we know that for communities of color and low income communities, they tend not to come from traditions of registration. Mm -hmm. And so they need a third party to ask them. So the League of Women Voters, the NAACP, someone has to come and say, do you want to register? Okay. Because that's the most effective way to get people on the rolls. There have been a number of states like Florida that have made it almost a crime to help people get on the rolls. Hmm. In Tennessee, when- Knowing that culturally, that's how it exactly. it happens a lot. So, exactly. So they're making a decision based on cultural um, proclivities, I exactly. guess. Exactly. Right. They, they read the same research I read. Mm-hmm. And they know that if you want to get more people of color on the rolls, if you want to get young people on the rolls- you need a third party to have a conversation to get them to, to register. Right. In Tennessee, in 20- and usually no, not please, to and usually just to explain to people why some of this exists, because what happens is there's a lot of distrust that happens, you know, with people who are, you know, on the bubble, not a, in part of that larger community or whatever. And so when someone who you trust 
comes in and says, this is okay. Okay. Exactly. I trust that person. Exactly. So I will go do that. That's that's usually how that works. Exactly. Right. right. And and we have the motor voter law, which people mm-hmm. a lot of people know that says if you go into the DMV to, to sign up to, to drive. Then you you're can, registered. The problem yeah. is there's a decreasing number of people who drive, who get their who get access to their ID through the DMV. Mm-hmm. And we know that not every DMV actually follows the law. They cherry pick who they offer the right to register to. And so then wow. there are a number of groups that actually have been suing for years to make more states actually follow the law. Mm-hmm. And so getting on the rolls itself, registering, because registration is the key to being able to vote. If you're not registered, if you don't cross that threshold, the rest of it is immaterial. Mm-hmm. And so if you can block someone at the point of registration, you can stop them from ever being a part of the process. And we know that the United States is one of only a handful of modernized democracies that puts the responsibility of registration on the voter. Mm-hmm. In almost every other country, they register you automatically. We make it a hurdle because we don't want you to do it. Right. Or some people don't want you to do it. So can you register? If you can get registered, then the next hurdle is can you stay on the rolls? There are database issues where suddenly you are vanished and you don't know why and no one can tell you why. Right. And you only find out when you show up to vote. Ghosting doesn't just happen in dating, you guys. I want you to know. You get voting ghosting. Exactly. (laughs) I got vote ghosted. And the thing Mm -hmm. is, people people of goodwill make mistakes. Sure. But people of ill will, they like to exacerbate those mistakes and make you think it was your fault. Mm -hmm. And make it so complicated for you to fix the mistake that you just give up and say, never mind, why worry? Right. So even someone with an intention of trying to do something about it. It's um, I'm actually in that situation right yeah. now where I can't even figure out why I'm not showing up in a certain exactly. way, you know. So in Georgia, for mm-hmm. example, we have this system called we have the system called Exact Match mm-hmm. that Brian Kemp uh, pioneered. Yeah. Even after his predecessor was told this is a racially discriminatory system, do not use it. Mm-hmm. It says that when you register to vote, if your name does not exactly match either the Social Security Administration or the DMV then you are rejected as a voter, that you're, you're put on hold. They never tell you what the mistake is. So let's say your mm. last name is Del Rios, D-E-L right. space R-I-O-S, mm-hmm. in Georgia. So your, drive, your, your social security card says John Del Rios. Got it. In Georgia, our DMV does not allow spaces and last names. So it automatically collapses it. Crazy. So when they measure- It doesn't what allow you, spaces. That's such an arbitrary thing. But, but to, I mean, you know, it's a computer program. Whatever computer sure. program they bought, right. didn't, spaces didn't occur. So let's say it was a, a clerical error. Sure. The problem is they never tell you that's why you're not on the rolls. Right. They just send you a letter saying you were not properly registered and you, you, know, you need to fix this. But you don't know what to fix because the only name you've ever had is John Del Rios. So you send it in again and again and again, and it becomes this endless loop of stupid. Yeah. Only it happens disproportionately to people of color, namely black people, and to women. And so in 2018, one of the other things that Brian Kemp was held accountable for was that 53,000 people had their registrations held hostage by this system. 70% of whom were black people. And many times it happens to women because when they get married, they're hyphenating their names or adding another name and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And the Social Security Administration actually told the state of Georgia, our system is not designed for this use. Don't do this. Mm -hmm. And they did it anyway. And it wasn't the first time because we were able, 
through the New Georgia Project and a coalition of groups, we had sued him before because 34,000 people had to be put back on the rolls because of the same stupid system. Mm -hmm. So it's not just incompetence, it's actual intention to block you from getting on the rolls. And then there's voter purge. Okay. In the United States, nine states have on their books the fact that you can lose your right to vote. You can be taken off the rolls if you don't vote after a certain number of elections. Now, where are these – are these posted laws? I mean, how do you find out about these things? When your name comes off the rolls. <laughs> I mean, they, it, this is one of the most mysterious mm-hmm. things. When you first told me about this um, last year, I'm like, wait a second. Yeah. How does this even happen? You know, it's it feels like an arbitrary thing. It is. So the, the intention was, again, benign. Mm-hmm. The idea was that you flag people who haven't voted in a certain number of elections like, as a signal to double check and make sure they're not dead or haven't moved. Okay. Because I'm like, why is it their business? <laughs> right. So, so you, you don't want dead people voting. Either. Sure. Because we know how, how often that happens. Exactly. Right. So, you know, let, let's say that there's the best intention. This is good practice. Okay. The problem is, instead of it being a benign tool used to flag, it mm-hmm. has now become an aggressive tool to purge. Mm-hmm. In Kentucky in 2019, Matt Bevin purged more than 170,000 voters. He's the Republican governor. Mm-hmm. He had reorchestrated the Board of Elections. 170,000 people got pulled off the rolls. Luckily, because Fair Fight was at the table, we were working with the state party in Kentucky. We were able to work with them to get them legal support. And 140,000 people got put back on the rolls because they'd been unlawfully purged. Mm -hmm. Matt Bevin lost his election by 5,000 votes. Mm. In Georgia, they recently purged 309,000 people. 313,000 were listed. By the time they got to the process, 309,000 were slated to be purged. Mm -hmm. Fair fight sued. Well, the first thing we did was we called through 100,000 people. We got 4,500 people to – we flagged for them. By the way, you're about to lose your right to vote. You might want to – you know. Fix it. Right. So we got them back on the rolls. We then filed a, a lawsuit. The day we had our hearing, the Secretary of State admitted to 22,000 errors, meaning 22,000 people were about to lose their right to vote. Wow. And But for our action, they would have been taken off the rolls. And he called it an error. Here's how I see it. You are stealing a person's democratic rights. Mm -hmm. I do not lose my Second Amendment rights because I didn't go hunting on Saturday. Nice. Clap line, yes. I don't lose my freedom of religion because I sleep in on Sunday mornings. Right. The right to vote is the only right in America that we can lose for not using. And so many people don't know that. You know, I had no idea. How do you – how does somebody proactively – guard against this? Because I know this is a reactive situation, but the reactive part of it is usually too late. Right. So that's one of the reasons we created Fair Fight. So Mm -hmm. we're in the 20 battleground states, 18 now, because Louisiana and Kentucky, we we had pretty good successes last Mm -hmm. year. We are in those states to help people learn what the problems are and to be proactive. And by battleground states, you're talking about states where there's going to, where uh, decisions are going to be closer than other exactly. states. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So okay. whether it's going to be a close decision for the presidency, okay. for the Senate, for congressional races, mm-hmm. but also for governors, for attorneys general, for secretaries of state, and for state legislatures. Okay. So it's where these issues can really make a exactly. difference. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I got a limited amount of resources and not that much time. So yes. we, we picked the 20. But the thing is, people need to check their registration. Mm-hmm. We take for granted that once we've done our part, that the system will do its part. That's not how it works anymore. Right. And sometimes it's benign and sometimes it's malicious and you can't tell the difference. Mm-hmm. So check. So that's the first thing you can do. 
because that's the that's the point of entry for voter suppression. And while only nine states have it on the books, analysis says that there are about 44 states who use some variation on this theme mm-hmm. that use your failure to vote as a reason to take you off of the rolls. And here's the thing. People are like, well, of course, if you don't vote, you shouldn't get to vote. That's not how That's America crazy. works. That's so stupid. Yeah. I may be happy 99% of the time, but the day I'm mad at the dog catcher, if I want to vote that time, then I should have the right to vote. There's nothing in the Constitution that says if you miss an election, you can't vote in the next Exactly. One. Right. What the Constitution says is I have the right to vote. Correct. Right. So that's the first big piece. Can you register and stay on the rolls? So let's say you get through that hurdle. The second hurdle is do you have access to a ballot? Mm-hmm. And that grouping, it's is your polling place closed? Right. Because if you can't physically get there, there are a lot of states that have app that let you vote by mail, vote from home. Mm-hmm. That's absentee ballots. But for a lot of those places, they require you have to have an excuse. So you have to be able to prove you're not going to be in town, that you are physically <laughs> like disabled. That you're, yes, right, you right. have to have a doctor's note. Right. And so for a lot of places where you would want to be able to vote from home, you can't. So if a polling place is closed, it matters. Mm-hmm. And as I described in Georgia, even though we have all of these other rules, if you live in a county where you only have one polling place, no public transportation, and you didn't get time off to go and vote during early voting because you had to work every day mm-hmm. and you work on Saturdays because you've got to work two jobs to make a living – then you need to be able to go to your polling place on the one day of the year where by federal law, they have to let you go and vote. Right. And that's the other piece. People are like, well, there are all these options. No, there are options for some people. Yeah. But voting is for everyone who's eligible. Yeah. I and remember, so, I forget where it was. We even covered it on my show where uh, they stopped letting people vote on Sunday. And that's when a lot of people would get black people from yeah, church, North put them on a bus, you know, and go vote. Sorry, can't do that anymore. Two thousand eight. Yeah. Outsized turnout by African American voters in North Carolina. Two thousand yeah. by two thousand ten, they eliminated <laughs> Sunday voting. They're like, let's shut that shit down. Thanks, Obama. Exactly. <laughs> right. exactly. Uh, another one is early voting. So, so you've got absentee. Right. You've got you. You need your polling place to stay open. Okay. So, and the distinction between early voting and absentee. Early voting, you can go to a polling place at any time before the election. Exactly. So you go or in person three weeks up to whatever it is. Exactly. Right. So it depends on the state. Some states it's a week, some states mm-hmm. it's longer, but you can physically go to a location in your, usually your county to right. vote. The problem there is when people started taking advantage of early voting, largely communities of color, young people, right. they started cracking down. So North Carolina tried to limit early voting. Florida and Texas have been really special. Uh-huh. College students started using early voting really effectively in, in Florida 60,000 people used these early voting locations in 2018 to mm-hmm. vote, and it was a 15% increase. Mm-hmm. People lose elections in Florida by like five votes, 15 votes, 5,000 votes, right. 10,000 votes. And they got manta rays voting in Florida. Who knows what's going on down there? <laughs> well, the state legislature, so there was a federal court decision that in 2018 forced them to allow people to vote early on these college campuses. Mm-hmm. In 2019, while they were also eliminating the felon voting restoration law, and we can talk about that if you want, Mm -hmm. they also slipped in language that said that you cannot have an early voting site on a college campus unless there is sufficient non-permitted parking. Now, if you've been on a college campus recently, everything is permitted parking because there are thousands of people coming to that campus every day. Absolutely. So they were saying, unless you can create a whole new parking lot in Florida— on a college campus, students have to find another way to go and vote. Right. 
in Texas, they said, well, even gators get frustrated because they, you know, (laughs) (laughs) nicely done. (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, In Texas, what they said is that if you do not have a sufficient staffing for the colleges, because Mm -hmm. you have to have, you have to be able to stay open for a certain number of days and be treated exactly like a county that's running an election, Mm -hmm. which is completely unnecessary. And so they've tried to limit early voting in that way. It's also voter ID. Voter ID is also a point of uh, contention because you, so you have absentee balloting, you have early voting, you have mm-hmm. precinct closures, and then you have voter ID. And people think, when they think voter suppression, they think it's all about voter ID. Yeah. And they go, what's so hard to get an identification? There's no voter suppression. So this is one of my really things that I, I don't like people bringing up. You know? so we've always had voter ID. You've always had to be able to prove who you are. Mm-hmm. Now, in some states, you had... 15 things you could use. In some states, you had 10. Some states, they didn't even ask. They just said, if somebody recognizes you, you can vote. By the way, California, I've never had to show identification. Yeah. It's They just say, what street are you on? Say the yeah. street, and they go, oh, here you are. North yeah. Dakota doesn't even register voters. Yeah. You just have to be able to walk. But what North Dakota did was you didn't have to register. You got to vote. But they passed a voter ID law. Mm-hmm. Because they didn't want to disturb all the people they liked who were voting. But Native Americans in 2012 voted overwhelmingly for Heidi Heitkamp, and she became a Democratic senator. Right. So in North Dakota, they passed, the a re- they passed a restrictive voter ID law. They'd mm-hmm. had it on the books, but they decided for the first time to it was enjoined. Nobody was using it. Mm-hmm. But after na- these Native Americans not only had the temerity to elect Heidi Heitkamp, but then they got mad about Standing Rock and tried to block a pipeline. Mm. And so they required that you have to have a, a legal address on your voter ID. Mm-hmm. Problem is, addresses are not often given if you live on a reservation, which Correct. most Native Americans in North Dakota do. Right. And the only one who can ascribe a address to you is the local or state government, which mm-hmm. does not want you to vote. And so there was one family, they were told that this was their address. And when they tried to use it, they said, well, that's not actually an address. That's the address of the liquor store. So your valid, your ID is invalid. <sighs> they used a restrictive voter ID law to block the right to vote. Wisconsin, there was a woman who had lived there for years, a black woman. And when Wisconsin changed their voter ID law, they made it more restrictive. So the woman went to go get the more restrictive ID. Mm-hmm. She'd been able to vote for years. Only this time they said she had to have her original birth certificate. Mm-hmm. She was born in Missouri during segregation. <laughs> right. She was not allowed to be born in a hospital, so she did not have an original birth certificate. Mm. She had a certificate of live birth, right? Which is the you know the issue that President Obama had. Sure. And because that was the only documentation, that's she all had, they gave you in Kenya. That's all they gave you. Right. Sorry, <laughs> I just slipped that in. <laughs> well, because this woman, this elderly black woman who had been voting, who was in the 1930 census. So right. there's proof that she's been around for a while. Mm-hmm. She was not permitted to vote in 2018 in the state of Wisconsin. That's crazy because of a change in the law. A change in right. the law. So what, what we have to – what we call voter ID is not voter ID. It's restrictive ID. Mm-hmm. It's when you take a broader way to prove who you are and you narrow and narrow it so fewer and fewer people have access to that identification. Mm-hmm. Texas is my other fun example. In Texas, if you're a student, you cannot use your student ID to vote. Mm-hmm. But you can use your gun license. Wow. In mm. Wisconsin, they said, yes, you can use your student ID, but it has to have an expiration date. But the state doesn't permit the local colleges to put expiration dates on the ID. 
Right. Like they're going to, well, how does this idea have an expiration date? Exactly. Here? Like they're. That's crazy. It's crazy. This is crazy talk. That's what voter ID is. It is not this benign idea right. idea of you just have to show who you are. Right. It's you have to show who you are in ways that are often invalid or impossible. Mm-hmm. And when that becomes the standard, you are eliminating people who for everything else they do have perfectly valid ID. Right. Or the inconvenience of it, because if people aren't thinking about this, but their inconvenience at the last minute, they don't have time to rectify exactly. the, the the nature of the of the thing that's wrong. Right? Yeah. Or you have right. to call like if you live in Wisconsin and you've got to call mm-hmm. Tennessee and right. find the county where you think you were born right. to get them to fax you an original you've got to find them. You've got to be able to get somebody on the phone. Right. Because not everyone has a computer they can use. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to afford to pay because they were like, oh well, ID is free. Even if you make the ID free where you are. That doesn't eliminate the cost it takes to meet the standards. Mm-hmm. And that can be cost prohibitive. If you've got to spend $175 to prove who you are, and that's the difference between insulin for that month yeah, or crazy. your ID, you're not going to choose that. Right. And that's what these laws do. They make tighter and tighter restrictions. Yeah. They wear you down and mm-hmm. they, they price you out of the market. It is a poll tax. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think uh – I think the country's doing the real ID. That's something that's happening in California. So, is that a nationwide thing? So man? real real ID is that is, the name of it? it? Yeah, real ID is a federal law that changes the standards for the security of your actual driver's license. So it's for interstate travel or flying Correct. or that type of thing. Correct. Mm-hmm. But even real ID is not the same. So there's but some people. See, who- I'm suspicious of real ID. I think okay. that's going to wind up. Exactly in the area you're talking about. There, you know? there are a lot of folks yeah. who share your suspicion. Yeah, I, I will. My challenge is this: not everyone drives, mm-hmm. not everyone travels, not everyone drinks, <laughs> and there are all these examples of well, if you have to have an ID to do X, the reality is for almost everything you want to do, there are multiple ways to prove who you are. Right. Why and when it comes to the right to vote. Are we so restrictive of the one right that is guaranteed to us by the Constitution when it comes to our democracy? What's interesting, too, is that, like, I never, I as much as I can, try to see things not necessarily in a left or right manner. Mm Because I believe most politicians are crooked anyway. That's how I kind of grew up. My parents are from Chicago, so I just believe that. I understand. They were Democrats (laughs) in Chicago, and they were crooked as, you know, oh, whatever, you know. It's just what I believe. But um, also, sometimes... um, Good intentions can lead to bad results as well. We know what the road to hell is paved with. So when you have things like um, giving driver's license to undocumented people, Mm -hmm. you know, that's going to open up a whole Pandora's box for voting rights. Because now you're going to have – here's the reverse effect that I'm saying. If people say, wait – this type of identification is used by people who can't vote. You can't use that type of identification at the voting booth. We have to have a new identification now that you have to have at the voting booth. So, so I think I think that See is where I'm going. Here? I, I do, but here's mm-hmm. here's where I push back. We cannot try to anticipate evil mm-hmm. by being worse before evil gets here. I'm not saying don't do that. I'm saying. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the thing is, they're going to find- I'm just anticipating evil. Yes. And, and, and my belief, I, I tell people, I am not, I'm not an optimist. I'm not a pessimist. Right. I'm an ameliorist. I yeah. believe the glass is half full. It's just probably poisoned. Right. My job is to find the antidote. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not- You believe the glass is half full, but it's probably poisoned. Yes. Okay. So, you know, I'm still going to get thirsty. Probably going to take a sip. Just going to have to deal with it. Got it. And so for me, the the-, the 
the reality is we can't stop them from doing bad, mm-hmm. but we have to understand the genesis of what they're doing and why. Right. And let me give you the third, because I know we've yes. got limited time. So Thank you. it's, can you register and stay on the rolls? Got it. Can you get access to the ballot? Mm-hmm. And then does your ballot get counted? Otherwise known as Florida. Yes. So that's the one. Ugh. So you've got a few things there. One, if you, let's say you finally, that you get an absentee ballot, you do all the work, you send it in. As I mentioned earlier, right. there's a signature mismatch. They throw out your ballot because the signature doesn't match mm-hmm. or they find some flaw with it. Mm-hmm. In some places they call you to fix it. In other places, they never tell you what the problem is. So you don't know. You don't that even you're voting. know. Exactly. Right. Two, it's the provisional ballot, mm-hmm. which is, as I said, it allows you to fix it, but if you don't know what the problem was or you can't come back and fix it, it hurts. Mm. But the most aggressive one is the fact that they under-resource how you even get to vote. So let's you so you stand in line. Mm-hmm. We all marveled at the long lines in 2008. Oh my God, isn't that Democracy great? Democracy in action. No, mm-hmm. it's under-resourcing low-income and communities of color so they don't have enough machines to move efficiently through the system. Mm. It is not a celebratory thing when there are long lines. Right. It means someone has failed in their job to anticipate and provide adequate access for voters. Mm-hmm. And that hurts people more than anything because let's say you are willing to vote. You've jumped through all of the hurdles and you are there, but you've got to be at work mm-hmm. or you've got to pick up your kids or your mother has dialysis. You can't spend four hours in line. And if you leave the line, you don't get to just come back and jump. You've got to start it all over again. Mm-hmm. Georgia, Florida, across the country, those long lines force thousands of people to not vote yeah. because they simply cannot afford the time. Because even though we have a federal law that says you're allowed to vote, it, usually you only get two hours. Right. Most states do not force you to get paid for the time you're gone. Right. And if you've got to take two hours on the bus to get to the precinct where you're allowed to vote on election day, you got to stand in line for four hours. That's six hours that you have not made money. That's no, crazy. And that's assuming you get in in that time and then you got to go back to work another two hours. So for a lot of people, you can't afford to vote. Right. And that is the problem that we have to solve, that the resourcing is not based on whether we like you. It's based on what you need to make voting efficient and to make it effective. I know you have to go. And thank you so much for spending this time. Just a couple of quick things. How do people get involved with Fair Fight? So Fair Fight, you can go to fairfight. And spoiler alert, I am involved in Fair Fight. I really believe in this. I rarely take sides and things out there. But this is one of the things I'm very passionate about. And I think it's so important for people. I appreciate that. Yes. And here's the thing. Voting is, I'm I'm partisan, but the Mm -hmm. work we do isn't. Because if you fix the the machinery of democracy, you fix it for everybody. Absolutely. It may target people of color, but it gets everybody. Yeah. And so go to fairfight.com mm-hmm. and you can sign up with us. We have two parts, Fair Fight Action, which is our C4, and Fair Fight PAC, which is our political arm. Right. And we can sign you up to be a volunteer on either side, and we can sign you up to help in your state. And if your state's perfect, like Oregon, where they do everything right, <laughs> then we can give you some work to do to help right. people somewhere else. Go get the people off those trees. Will Stacey Abrams be running for office again? Yes. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And national, statewide? Yes. Something coming up soon? Don't know. Wow. Will Stacey Abrams be accepting things if things are offered? I absolutely would be honored to help someone become the next president of the United States. Hey, I didn't even go there, you guys. Your euphemisms are really clear. She just put it right up there. (laughs) You guys heard it. All right, best ticket scenarios. (laughs) The one that wins. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Do you have— Yes. Talk about one more issue. One more. The Go census. For it. 
Yes, census. Yes, yes. absolutely. Because we're in a census year. It's yes. 2020. Um, last one was 2010, right? Yes, absolutely. What, most important thing right now. Census. We have to remember that if you are not counted, you do not count. Yes. If black people are undercounted to the extent they expect, that means 1.7 million black people won't be counted. That will cost their communities $3.3 billion oh, a year. Mm-hmm. For Latinos, it's about 2.2 million that they think won't be counted. That's $4.1 billion every year that does not make it to those communities. Mm-hmm. If you are Asian Pacific Islander, it's about um, 350,000 people who won't be counted, about $590 million. And if you're Native American or Native Alaskan, it's mm-hmm. about 105,000 people, about $290 million. The reality is these are real dollars. Yeah. If your community doesn't get the grocery store or doesn't get access to the hospital they need, if the roads don't get fixed, if your kids don't have the right books, that's all because of the census. Mm-hmm. People are afraid. They're like, well, if I fill out the census, they'll know where I am. If you have a cell phone or a light bill, they know where you are. <laughs> yes. The you issue, have an iPhone, they you, know where you they are. They know where yes, you are. Exactly. You want them to give you your money. That's right. And so if you fill out the census, that's how it works. And if you fill out the census by when it first starts, they won't knock on your door. Mm -hmm. So I know there's a lot of concern about ICE and the information being used to terrorize people. We were able to stop, and there was a coalition of folks working to stop the citizenship question. It's not going to be on there. But the reality is if you fill out the census ahead of time, there's no reason for anyone to come to your house. And this is about districts also. It's also about politics. About how we're drawing districts. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So it's your money power. And it's also your political power. That's right. The census determines how we allocate power, not just for Congress, mm-hmm. although it's a big deal. That's what the Republicans did. Yeah. In 2010, 2010 they, they crushed it. They paid attention crushed to it. the census yes. and they took everything. And if you've Completely. enjoyed the last 10 years, then let them do it again. That's right. If you've had any qualms, mm-hmm. yeah. let's do something different. Because the reality is it's not just Congress. It's your state legislature that decides right. whether you have abortion rights and what the gun laws are and how much money goes to your school system mm-hmm. and whether your kids can be arrested at 13 or 16 or 21. Mm. But it's also your school board. Every single layer of government uses the same census numbers. And if they miss your community, you cannot fix it. There is no do-over for the census. It happens once every 10 years, and we've got to live with the results for a decade. That's and right. if you don't think they can screw you over in a decade, you have not been paying attention. And sometimes for decades. Exactly. It is not a fair fight out there, you guys. That's why you have to join Fair Fight. And, and, and we want you to have a Fair Count, which is the second, or, second organization I created. Yes. So if you go to faircount.org, go you on, can learn girl. all about the census. We are working here in Georgia. In fact, our team is down in Louisiana this weekend. Good. We are working across the country. We will help you connect in your community to make sure your community gets counted. Faircount.org if you want a good census. Fair fight if you want a fair fight for our elections. And my mission is fairness for all. And guys, these are ways you can, everybody can make a difference. Trust me, everybody can make a difference. You're just encouraging your grandmother, your nephew, you know, your cousin to to make sure they're registered properly, to help them get out there and vote. Absolutely. Things like that make a difference here, Absolutely. you know, to make sure it's kind of. Stacey Abrams, thank you so much. Thank you. Best of luck this year with everything. I appreciate no that. what happens. Larry Mulmore, you are a voice of great reason and Yay. equanimity and quite funny humor. Oh, thank you so much. We'll talk about writing next time. How about I that? I look forward to it. Okay, great. You All heard right. him. He said I get to come back. Yeah. Uh, you, yes. Are you kidding me? <laughs> okay. All right. Thanks, Stacey. Thank you.